Good morning. Good to see everyone. Uh, if, you have your, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Genesis 16. Uh, my name is Will, one of the pastors here, and it's my pleasure to give you God's Word as we continue along in this series, looking at the life of Abraham. And so if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We do this as a, as a sign and an act of like, reverence and worship. Uh, we have a high view of the Word of God and pray that that Word would bless you here today. I'm going to read the entire chapter Genesis 16, starting with verse 1. This is God's word for you. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me, between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please." And Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, for she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beshir Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And this is God's word. You can take your seats. Well, sort of as a reminder in terms of where we've been in the life of Abraham, looking at the book of Genesis, starting with Genesis 12. One of the applications of looking at the life of Abraham is to understand that he, in some ways, represents us. That although a Jewish man from centuries and millennia ago, the world in some level is the same, living faithfully by the promises of God with a lot of temptations and challenges around us. So life sort of seems to be two steps forward and then one step back. And in chapter 16, we see this sort of fragile faith of Abram. There's this author, Natasha Potter, she has once said this, Life is full of ups and downs. The only way to make the journey worthwhile is if you enjoy the good and learn from the bad. And when we look at this, we can recognize that that sort of encapsulates really the the life of Abraham. There are ups and there are downs, and you enjoy the good times, but also you learn from the bad. So, for example, when we began this story of Genesis, starting in Genesis 12, it was essentially a missions call where God called Abraham to leave everything. 
and it was a step forward in faith. He was strong just following God's promise. And then we see towards the end of chapter 12, there is a step backward because he tells Sarah to risk her life by lying that, he, that she was his sister because Abraham was selfish and self-centered and he was faithless. And then you see there is a step forward because Abraham all of a sudden seems to be valiant and gracious, and he lets Lot, his nephew, choose first which land does he want. And then there's a giant leap forward in Genesis 14 because not only does he rescue Lot, but he defeats four kings, continuing the promises of God of land and people. But in our passage in Genesis 16, we take a really deep step backward again. But it is a reminder that life is unpredictable, that it's not perfect, that even for the most faithful of us, it is a journey in which there are a couple of steps forward in growth and faith, but sometimes we stumble and we walk back a little bit. And that's Genesis 16. It's an honest reminder, reflection of your sin and mine, our selfishness. But in the backdrop of that sin, it really pours the overwhelming grace of God upon us. So let's take a look at this fragile faith. The passage is broken up simply into two sections. In verses 1 to 6, we're going to look at a fracturing of faith, a fragile faith. We'll look at the sinfulness of man. But in secondly, the second part, 7 to 16, we'll look at faith in God, or really God's pursuit of broken people. So the first half is really faith in ourselves. The second half is really faith in God. The first half is really a fragile faith looking to ourselves and our brokenness. But the second half in 7 to 16 is really about God's unrelenting and pursuing grace of you and me as we see this in his pursuit of Hagar. So let's look at this. Let's look at what life looks like when you have faith in yourself. Take matters into your own hand. The sinfulness of man. Now, the tone of the passage is set right from verse 1. It really is the theme. It sets the color. It sets the feeling of this passage. It says there, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. To the point, terse, matter of fact, you remember that there are two big promises that God made to Abram. One, I'll give you land. And then secondly, I'll give you children. Now, before we get so critical of Sarah, just imagine what her situation is like. You hear this voice of God, I'm going to bless you so that your children, more numerous than the stars, and they've been waiting for years, waiting for years. That's not really a direct application, but you can imagine for some people, some couples who have been waiting for years to try to get pregnant. But this, in some ways, reflects Sarah and Abraham's situation. They've been waiting at least 10 years in Canaan. See, verse 1 is so matter-of-fact, but you could risk losing the emotion of it, the psychology of it, the experience of it. And this is why. Modern-day understanding of men and women roles are the same in the Bible, but also very different. Because in that culture, a woman's identity and value was completely bound up in her ability to have children. Remember, it wasn't a perfect world back then. It was misogynistic. It was patriarchal. It was, in some ways, demeaning and oppressive to the female gender. But what determined one's value in society was her ability to have children. That was her net worth. That was her significance. And so for Sarah, not only is it that she wasn't able to have children, it wasn't just about her self-worth, but she literally had the weight of the world on her shoulders. 
Why? Because it's through her child that the nations would be blessed. The future of the kingdom, the church itself, rested completely on her ability to have a son. So you imagine her situation, the frustration, the pressure, the anger, the bitterness. You can imagine the desperation that she had waiting 10 years, at least in Canaan. She has no value. She's thinking about her future. She's thinking about God's promises. So what does she do? She has faith in herself and takes matters into her own hands. And then in verse 3, we see that 10 years in Canaan, still no children. And then he tells, she tells her husband, Abram, take my maidservant, Hagar, my slave, and have a baby with her. Let's think about that for a second. That's wrapped up in all kinds of controversy, especially from thinking as a modern-day person in the Western world. The one thing you have to understand is that when Sarah does this, that there is a surrogate motherhood, it was completely acceptable back then for a rich woman to use one of her slaves as a surrogate mother because if the surrogate mother had a child, the actual wife would still have significance and value because the child would be her very own. It was absolutely acceptable, and it was a common, almost universal practice back then in the ancient Near East. Women of wealth had maidservants, and they would use them in any way they wanted. It was natural. It absolutely was normal. But here's the problem. Just because it's normal in culture doesn't mean that it's normal in the Bible. Just because something is culturally acceptable doesn't mean that it's biblically acceptable because this is objectifying women, this is using women, this is demeaning for women. They use women and the ability to procreate as a commodity. Nowhere in the Bible does God approve of this practice. In fact, the Bible affirms something else in Genesis 2, saying that marriage and even childbearing is only between man and woman, holding in matrimony and marriage. So the Bible never affirms this sort of polygamous, objectifying, demeaning approach to women. It actually, Christianity breaks into the culture as it normally does, and it really flips the values upside down. It may be a little bit slow. God never approves of this. He already spoke to us in creation, and he said, this is something that we never affirm according to the kingdom principles and the economics of the gospel. And this is the way you can think about it. Not only is it true that no one in the Bible God approves of this, but in fact, not only is this the breaking of the marriage covenant of the one flesh in Genesis 2, just read the stories in Genesis, because whenever there were multiple wives, whenever there was polygamy, there was always a fracturing of family and a hurt and brokenness. Now, you have this scholar, a Jewish scholar of the Hebrew language. He's not a Christian. His name is Robert Alter. He wrote this book that many pastors and Christians have used called The Art of Biblical Narrative. And even though he's not a believer, a professor of Hebrew and literature at Berkeley, he wrote in this book, especially on the fracturing of families in Genesis, and said, in every generation, polygamy wreaks havoc. Having multiple wives is an absolute disaster, socially, culturally, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, relationally. And Robert Alter goes on and points out that when you read the Old Testament, and he particularly focuses on the family drama in Genesis and family conflicts, he says that we find polygamous relationships to never work out in the family system. So he says the Bible often describes things in a way that is culturally submersive. So even though it was culturally acceptable to have a surrogate mother, the Bible 
is subversive in that and shows that going against God's design ultimately leads to destruction. So polygamy actually in Genesis, in Genesis 16, might be said to be more of a cautionary tale rather than an example to follow. So even though we see this, that Sarah gives Abram a surrogate mother, the Bible absolutely, in my opinion, speaks against that, actually values marriage, values women, values procreation in the way that God has designed. Because whenever you go against God's design, there's a fracturing of family and society. And that's what we see here in Abraham chapter in verse 2. Abraham passively listens to Sarah, has a baby with Hagar in at least a family fracturing and destruction. Look at verse 4. It says, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So after Hagar had a baby with Abram, it says that immediately Hagar looks at Sarah with contempt. Do you know what contempt means? Superiority. Now, the, the fracturing has already really begun. And you could understand why that really is. Hagar is filled with pride. She's filled with superiority. She's filled with identity. Because remember, we said in that culture, your worth is your ability to have children. That's your social capital. That's your sense of net worth. That's your identity. That what, that's what makes you feel good. That's your future. So when Sarah can have a baby and Hagar has one, even though she was a surrogate mother, automatically she looks down and criticizes Sarah. She's filled with contempt. There's a sense in which even in the ancient Near Eastern context that a surrogate mother could strive to claim equality with the actual wife, so there is a battle of power. Sarah would feel threatened, humiliated. She'd feel jealous about this. So much so that in verse 6, Abram says, deal with her any way that you want, and Sarah dealt with her harshly. I don't know what that means, but I feel like it probably involved at least harsh words, and probably she beat her. I mean, after all, she was still Sarah's slave. She was Sarah's servant. Hagar is puffed up. Sarah is deflated. Hagar having a child had, in that cultural economics, all the value and significance. She felt good about herself. She had her identity built not on Jesus, but upon her accomplishments, and therefore she looks down on Sarah. Sarah didn't have a baby, so working on the same paradigm, not finding her value in God's promise or in Jesus Christ, but Sarah feels like a nobody. She feels envious and jealous. That's the problem. This makes sense because, again, the identity for a woman, the value is all bound up in family, the ability to marry, the ability to have a child, their worth, their capital, their social influence. Whenever your identity, friends, is in something other than God, what we see here is that relationships fracture and you begin to implode. And this is a challenge, friends. It may not be with you and me in terms of childbearing, but in our hearts, we always find something that we build our identity in, derive our value from. For them, it was just having a kid. The challenge is to think, what about you and me? What do we find our identity in, our sense of worth and value? All you have to do is substitute child for whatever you love, and that's essentially the application for you. Let me give you a couple examples. I read this book years ago called Hillbilly Elegy, really interesting book. Author is J.D. Vance. It was talking about growing up in the Appalachian context, sort of middle, middle America, went up to uh, Yale Law School, started 
moving into the social class of the upper echelons of you know, capitalistic America. A really fascinating book all in the context of you know, the presidential election back then. But he writes in this book when he was a little kid in the first grade that his teacher used to play this game every morning where the teacher would announce a number, the number of the day, and then each student would come up with a math equation that would meet that number. So if it was the fourth of the month, then students would give equations like 3 plus 1, 2 plus 2, they equal 4, and if they get the math right, they get a piece of candy. Now on one day, he writes, the number was 30. It was the 30th of the month. So the easy equations were given by the students in the beginning, 29 plus 1, 28 plus 2. But he thought to himself, I was better than that. I'm going to blow my teacher's mind away. We just learned about subtraction not too long ago. So his equation was 50 minus 20. And the teacher gushed over him and how smart he was and gave him two pieces of candy, and he was on cloud nine because he thought he was smarter than everyone else. Until right after that, a student goes, 10 times three. And he was like, what in the world is times? And the teacher said, does anybody know what multiplication is? And he said, I don't know what multiplication is. No one did. I didn't know actually what times meant. And he says, I was crushed. He writes, I returned home and burst into tears. I was certain my ignorance was rooted in certain failure of my character. I just felt stupid. See, for J.D. Vance, don't know if he's a Christian or not, his center of worth and idolatry and his heart that derived value was not childbearing, but it was intelligence. It was math equations and pieces of candy. He was crushed. That's the language of idolatry. See, for you, it may be intellect, it may be academics, it could even be work. Anything actually could be in that one place, whether, whether it's work, whether it's child, whether it's family, whether it's power. Recently read an article in Business Insider. It's kind of interesting. It's like an article telling you how to get promoted in work. And it was talking about this one simple accountant. Her name was Ayomi Samawira. And she was a senior manager at Ernst & Young, and she skyrocketed to senior management in eight years. She says, I was laser-focused on deriving promotion after promotion through my work ethic. Until one time, they gave her an audit of her year, and she says, in one year, I had 99 flights and 130 nights in the hotel. Then she started seeing with clarity. And she says this, promotion after promotion, but looking back, I was never satisfied with them. I pushed myself to my absolute limit, chasing my senior manager title. Every time I got a promotion, there was a fleeting moment of happiness right after receiving the news, and then I switched back to laser focusing on the next one. The promotions were never enough for me. And friends, you could probably relate to this. You idolize love, the relationship gets hard. You idolize marriage, it's really hard. You idolize children, and that's a tough one, but children are also difficult. The point of what I'm saying is that when you look at Hagar and Sarah, because our culture said that your sense of worth is going to be in childbearing, you and I all have our similar aspirations and challenges. And whenever you build your life on something other than Jesus, life begins to fracture. That's why the great reformer Martin Luther said this, whenever your heart clings to and rests in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. Part of the difficulty is being able to identify this in yourself. 
One of the ways is to begin to do this is simply ask yourself good questions. You know, you don't have to report this to anybody, but these are just questions I found in the article to ask yourself to dig in. What is your idolatry and childbearing worth? Do you find yourself lying awake about money and finances at night? Do you get angry when your child brings home a C minus? Is your mind like a video recorder playing a harsh comment or less than perfect eval at work? Do you find your mind wandering 10 times a day about being married or winning the lottery? Do you like what you see when you look in the mirror? Those are questions that could lead you to what Sarah and Hagar are struggling with. Hagar looked with Sarah contempt. Sarah was jealous and angry and beat her. And that's what happens when you have your own idolatry. And that's something you have to discover by the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel to say you have built your life on something other than Jesus Christ. And your life is fracturing. But this is the good news. And our second point, God pursues you to reorient your heart to him. There's a faith in God. Let's read verses 7 to 10. It's really 7 to 16, but let's read 7 to 10. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from a mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Let me just say, first of all, in verse 7, that's the first occurrence of the word angel in the Bible. And here, it's not just an angel as a messenger of the Lord. I think actually the angel is God himself. Because in verse 13, Hagar says, I see that you're God, talking to the same angel. So I think the angel is just a manifestation, a representation of God. And when you look at this conversation, God shows to this Egyptian slave that he cared for her. Abraham, Sarah kicked her out. No one's chasing after her. God chased after her. Now, the reason it's so amazing is because if you didn't know your Bible, let me tell you, Hagar, her genealogy was essentially the enemy of the church. Hagar actually was the non-Christian line. Hagar were those who were the reprobate, the non-Christian, those who reject God. That's the family genealogy that was always in battle with Sarah and Isaac. But even for the enemy of God, even for those who didn't believe, even for those who are non-Christian, the only person that pursues them is God. See, as a side note, that tells you something phenomenal about the way we engage the culture in the world, that yes, it's easy to love those in the church. Actually, sometimes it's not that easy, but it's easy in theory to love our brothers and sisters in the church. But when you have like a ministry like City Lights where we're trying to really move out into the culture and the world this Saturday in order to love our neighbors, those who we don't know actually if they're Christian or not, God shows us an example and says his heart is just as much to learn and to love people in our surrounding communities. That's amazing. The grace of God pursues the mother of the lineage that is always in battle against the church. See, friends, the angel is God here, and look at how, now I know this is sort of going beyond the passage, but look at how great God is a counselor. Look how tender and delicate God is. Sarah beats Hagar. God chases after her. The reason I think it's so delicate is because this. The first thing is that because the angel was God, he knew everything. 
why in the world would the angel ask, Sarah, ask Hagar, where are you coming from, where are you going? It's not as if God didn't know. The reason he does this is because he's trying to connect with her. Where are you going? Where are you coming from? God already knew, but he wants to connect. He wants her to talk. He wants to relate. He wants to draw it out of her. You know, there's a counseling lesson here. The other reason I know that this is such a delicate moment is because commentators will say this is the only passage in the Bible where God calls a woman by her actual name. The only passage. And the only passage in the Bible where a woman gets to name God. Isn't names personal? Isn't that intimate? The only passage in which God will name a woman in which a woman gets to name God. A woman who is not of the lineage and the future generations of the church. It's delicate. It's intimate. He chases after her. He asks her good questions. He names her and says, Hagar. Hagar names God back. There's an intimacy here that shows us a model of how we're not only supposed to engage our church, but maybe our enemies, maybe the difficult people in my life, in your life. Some of you may know this, but when the Bible says God sees someone, it means in the Old Testament that God cares for someone. And this woman feels cared for by God, the God of Abraham. Even though Abram didn't reach after her, she feels cared by God, loved by him, chased after. Says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. I'll be there with you. I'll get you through this. This is a lesson for us, friends. There may be those who seem marginal to the world and to God's purposes and plan, who seem insignificant in the great flow of things in life. But God shows us that as Christians and followers of Jesus, we may have an obligation to love people who are marginalized by the world. That God may be calling us in these verses to mirror his love for people, especially those who are the quote-unquote Hagars of our lives, the defenseless, the marginalized, the oppressed. To be agents of justice, to really bring to light in a world that's broken the love and the pursuing grace of God. And this is what Hagar says in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are God of seeing, for she said, Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. So there's a lot of seeing. One way to say this and explain that the healing process for Hagar is things that you and I actually say in our world, isn't it? Don't we say sometimes in the depression and the hard heartaches of our lives, I just want to be seen. And then when somebody, you, felt, you say, I feel so seen. You know, when I went to missions, uh, short-term missions to Cambodia once, you know, I just talked to everybody on the team, and I got feedback from the leader that one of the members just said, I felt so seen. What does it mean to feel seen? Because Hagar says, I see that you are God of seeing. Ishmael, that name means I see the affliction. Truly, I've seen him who has seen me. What is it? Why is that so significant back for Hagar and us? Why do you, if you're honest, want to be seen in this world? Well, there's this article in The Atlantic, a positive one that says, the feeling of when you feel seen. So it's a non-Christian article, but I think it really speaks to this desire in all human beings to feel seen, to feel known, to feel accepted. And the author writes this, sort of paraphrasing, what does it mean when I look on the screen or go to a show or see a meme and I say, I feel seen? 
know, sometimes when someone says they feel heard, they feel like someone has really listened to them as if their words have been paid attention to. I know what it means when somebody says they feel touched. They feel like someone has made a connection with them on an emotional level. You say, that really touched me, as if physical contact were happening in the soul. In both cases, the primary senses have been abstracted to their essential emotional experiences. Whether you feel heard by your words or whether someone touched you on the emotions, there's a connection that you have. So what does it mean when you say, I want to feel seen? I don't think we mean seen as being viewed and watched. I can't imagine someone receiving a relatable meme from a friend responding, I feel famous. It also doesn't mean that feeling seen means being observed. You know, we're not smashing the like button and laughing because the government is watching us through our front-facing iPhone camera. It's more like when you say, I feel seen, you're saying, I feel understood. I feel affirmed. I feel recognized. It's a feeling of identification with the content that has truly reflected our experience and our struggles and our heartaches, an experience that is spoken and reflected back to us sort of like that Greek mythological character Narcissus who just stares at his own image in the water. That's where we get narcissism. But this is more positive. This is why in some ways you could be physically present among hundreds of people but feel absolutely invisible because no one knows what you're going through. And I'm going to guess that many people in this room, you don't feel seen. The struggles, the heartache, the brokenness. You know what? I get that. You know why I get that? Because as your pastor, a broken sinner, I oftentimes also don't feel very seen with the challenges and struggles of life. And we have to work through that, you and I. You may not feel seen by me. I don't really feel seen by you. That's okay. We can work that out. Do you know why? Because Hagar in verse 13 had it right. God sees you. God understands you. And at some level, he'll use the people around you to understand your frustrations and your heartaches and your disappointments so that to some level you could feel seen by the community of the church of Jesus Christ because the head of the church, Jesus, sees you. In Jesus, God doesn't just see you, he saves you. In Jesus Christ, God just doesn't recognize you, he redeems you. In Jesus, he just doesn't acknowledge you, but by his grace and by his work of his son, he adopts you. He makes you his very own. And that's what the passage pushes us to to think and to consider. That the picture here ultimately shows us as I kind of expand and come to the conclusion is that when you're seen, one of the challenges is to understand that even that notion is a very individualistic perspective. It doesn't mean it's wrong, but everybody wants individualism. Everybody wants to be seen in their unique personalities and struggles. Absolutely true. But what God pushes us beyond this is to say, I see you uniquely, you unique struggles and challenges and heartaches, frustrations, sins. He says, I see you specifically and uniquely, but he says, you know what? When I see you, you're not alone because God sees you and me as part of a wider community. That's why when we see Sarah, it says, Sarah, you're going to be a childbearer, a mother to someone who will be a multitude of nations. When God says, I see Abraham, doesn't say, well, I see Father Abraham. I see you as a father of many nations. Even with Hagar, he says, I see what you're going through, but it's just not about you individually. I see that you will have children that will be so many 
children that you can't even count the multitude. Because one of the challenges in an individualistic society for you and me is to say that when God sees you and saves you, that when God recognizes you and redeems you, when God acknowledges you and adopts you, he's saying he's bringing you into a community that you are no longer just an individual, but you are part and brought into inextricably bound up in your sense of purpose and identity in this world with one another in the church. That you could be seen by each other from a gospel lens as God has seen you through the lens of his son. So you take two steps forward, you take one step back. If you have faith in yourself and take matters into your own hands by living your life on something in this world, that's not Jesus, your relationships will fracture. But when you know that your promise and your identity can be in God who sees you and then engrafts you and sees you as part of a community, then and only then, you'll begin to thrive in life and begin to continue forward by taking small, marginal steps inch by inch. But every step forward, even one step back, means that you're progressing to pursue the will of God in your life, the promises that God has given you. And that is what the church of Jesus Christ is called to in the gospel of God's Son, who saved you and loved you, sees you and saves you. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much because... Lord God, you give us your word, a historical picture of just people who we have never met but just reflect humanity back to us, and we confess that many of us ground our identities and our sense of worth in things other than you. Help us to repent of our sins, to be brought back to you, to be rejuvenated, restored, healed, reconciled with you as we feel seen by you, and that you allow us to help one another being felt and understood and seen as we build each other up in the gospel of Jesus. We thank you so much, God, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.